Uh, hello, Core Spirit. Uh, today with us, Dr. Nasha Winters. Uh, she is a licensed naturopathic doctor and a fellow of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology. She is a global healthcare authority in the integrative cancer research, and she has co-authored a book uh, about the metabolic approach to uh, cancer. Uh, hello, Dr. Winters, and welcome to Core Spirit. Uh, so I know that you have an unbelievable story about uh, your own um, experience of cancer. Can you please share uh, it with us and uh, uh, tell us uh, what what led you to this point now? Sure, sure. And you know, I think a lot of folks who probably land on your platform here have had their own experience of you know, being out of balance, of being sick, we're drawn to finding other options. And I'm no different. You know, my whole experience that led me into naturopathic medicine and my passion for Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, anthroposophical medicine, vitalistic healing modalities, as well as standard of care. I love science. I love laboratory assessment. I love data. I mean, those are the things that I still use to inform the decisions on how I support people in their healthcare endeavors. But for me, it began, honestly, probably in the womb, right? I don't, we don't have to go into the details of how long that's been going on, but my mom and her health and her health uh, sort of lifestyle choices and her state of mind, even at the time of conceiving me, um, was I was already kind of behind in the game. So I was the, I, my mom got pregnant with me shortly after the loss of a baby. And that can really leave the person very fear-based in the midst of their pregnancy, which we know epigenetically today changes us and makes us more vulnerable to things in the world. For me also, I was born with having no ability to eat pretty much anything they offered. And at that time, they weren't breastfeeding, which is ironic because breast would have been best. But at that time, they tried every formula and settled on soy formula. Now this is in the early 70s. And so unfortunately what that did is by the time I was nine years old, I started menstruating. At that time in the world, that was not normal, right? Today, unfortunately, we see it again and again, still not normal, just more common. And I had pretty much from the get-go, just horrific digestive issues. So between digestive issues, between starting to menstruate early, um, extreme, extreme toxic family environment, stress environment, by the time I was a teenager, I already had polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, celiac disease, early stages of rheumatoid arthritis, um, lots and lots of horrible cystic acne, um, lo loads and loads of IBS patterns, digestive issues. So my diagnosis that came later at the age of 19 of end-stage terminal ovarian cancer was missed in part because it was cloaked under an entire lifetime of symptoms that could have been pointed into any direction. So the people who were looking for me missed it. You know, I missed it. I didn't know I was 19 for crying out loud. And so by the time I, I kept getting back and forth in the emergency room almost every few weeks for six, eight months before I landed in the ER, pretty much unconscious, uh, very, very sick, uh, no oxygenation, kidney, lung, liver, heart in, in failure. I'd filled up with fluid throughout my whole body. Um, and that's when they finally did the proper workup and realized I was very rapidly dying of end-stage cancer. To the point when they 
realized it, they also realized I was too sick to even have a single treatment of chemotherapy. They knew it would kill me outright. And that's just unfortunately the way it was. So sort of given that good old pat on the head, and I'm really sorry for your diagnosis, but go home and get your affairs in order. You've got a couple of months. And therein starts my journey to what brings us together today over 28 years later, okay, alive and well, um, and also continuously searching for what causes us to get out of balance and what helps bring us back into balance. That's been my life's passion, my life's, my life's work, and clearly why I was given such a diagnosis and such an opportunity to use it to learn for myself and for tens of thousands, if not futuristically millions of others to help along the way. Unbelievable. And what did you start with uh, these uh, couple of months uh, of, of your life? Uh, well, I'm a, I was always like kind of aiming to go to medical school. I was very interested in medicine, was very interested in the sciences. And that's what I was doing in my, when I was diagnosed, I was in my sophomore year of college. I was pre-med. I was already in all of my, you know, more advanced science classes in prep for going to medical school. And so I always had that inquisitive learner's mind anyway. So my first thought out of shock was then anger when I was angry that it had been missed for so long and I had been dismissed and sort of labeled as, you know, a little bit hysterical by the medical world. So I had a really bad taste in my mouth about standard of care after that experience. And it, it pushed me to look into other healing modalities of which I knew nothing about at all. Very green to that um, world. Also back in 1991, there was no Dr. Google, there was no poor spirit platform, there was no ability to research the what was out there and there was very little information. But what I was able to do at that time was when I left the doctor, my second opinion doctor's office, um, went straight to the library and a book literally pretty much jumped off the shelf at me, which was the book Quantum Healing by Deepak Chopra. Right. Back in 1991, that was a very, such a unique book and perspective. And it was all about paradigm shifts, quantum shifts. And I feel like sitting there and reading that book in a matter of hours on the library floor, literally I had a quantum shift. I had a paradigm shift and I knew there was much more than meets the eye to than just standard of care medicine that I was so actively seeking to pursue as a career in my life and even tried to pursue to save my life, which was already sent me out to pasture. And so in that, I started to stumble across because I was so, so sick. Um, I didn't expect to live, but I thought, but I want to understand what's going on and why as I'm dying. So I wanted to know. That's, that's just my self of curiosity. That's how I've always been and how I always will be. That led me into um, a few things. But first and foremost, I was so terribly sick that anything I put into my body came immediately back up. And I had a small bowel obstruction at the same time. So a little bit of TMI for your listeners. Um, there was nothing going in or out of my body. Um, and in fact, to the point where I was so backed up, I was even vomiting feces. Now that's a lot of information that's probably hard for people to hear. But what that forced me to do is not eat at all for about two, and two, two and a half months. It's been a long time because I never thought about it in the time. You're just in the moment of it. And today we talk about fasting all the time, but then it was just a matter of like, I didn't have, you know, real estate for it. There was no place to put it in my body. So I was able to just drink small amounts of water 
and that was it. So I inadvertently did a very powerful healing with a water fast. And amazingly, didn't know anything about electrolytes and whatnot. And because I was already so messed up, I'm surprised I didn't kill myself. Like I would not recommend anybody go into a water fast with what I did then. Don't follow that step without good medical advice. I know what I would do differently for myself to support me through that process. But I think what that did for me is slow things down. It so slowed things down enough that the fluid started to dissipate from around my organs. I had to have multiple taps to remove fluid from my, from my abdomen and through my body. And things started to stabilize there, which then gave me time to research and learn more. And I stumbled upon the work of Otto Warburg. And that's what led me into knowing that this was more of a mitochondrial metabolic disease versus a genetic disease, even though it took another few years before I did learn I have the genetics for a higher predisposition to such cancers. But we didn't know that yet in this story, right? So I understood then that sugar was a problem and I removed it from my diet. Now, what I didn't know at that time was the only information available for cancer diets was Gerson therapy is really all we knew and kind of raw food veganism. And because I'd come from such a horrific standard American diet, it was just wrought with processed food, with no food really, with no vegetables, with nothing alive, with everything processed, even the meat that I ate. Although I had become a vegetarian at 16 for reasons around animal security. Because I lived in Kansas, I saw feedlots all around me, and I did not want to eat animals from that environment. Now, a feedlot animal and a pastured animal are very different creatures, so I want people to know that. But at that time of 16-year-old psychology, I had already given up all of those products and still was dying of, of terminal cancer, right? So that was the journey for me to start to realize, take the sugar out, because my diet was almost 100% sugar potatoes, all the starchy veggies. I loved my carrots and my carrot juice. I loved my apples. I loved my fruit. That's still sugar. I ate a ton of grains and legumes, all sugar, right? I ate a ton of bread, all sugar. Those were the things that I was not eating animal products, but I was certainly eating everything sugar. And at that time in 1991, everyone was petrified of fat. So of course, low fat everything, right? No fat, low fat. And that actually, weirdly, because I started eating vegetables, brought me up another level in my health and stabilized me further. But it wouldn't push me beyond just sort of merely trying to swim around the pool and keep one nostril out of the water to survive. So I wasn't healing, but I was no longer dying. Does that make sense? And then I started learning more. I ended up in naturopathic medical school in 1996. And I started to learn more about nutrition and the deficiencies my body had been dealing with for the 10 years that I'd been a vegetarian, then vegan, vegan, hardcore vegan at that period of time. And that's when I started to realize I was extremely malnourished previously of my diet and definitely in the diet I was, I was taking in at that time. So I started to use supplements and IV nutritionals and IV therapies to help really start to heal my body. And so my point of telling you that long drawn out story is I'm still on this journey, Olga. I'm still learning. I still am, I take a very good in, um, inventory of my labs regularly, um, once or twice a year, depending on if I have any symptoms of any kind, I check in a little bit sooner, but usually I have an annual check-in for myself. I do things like uh, thermographies. I do things like very provocative testing around heavy metals and toxicants. And I look at all these other components. And over my journey to heal and save my own life, 
I learned a few things to do that for myself, but also for many others who then in turn taught me volumes on top of what I learned in my medical school training, both in a doctorate in Chinese medicine, doctorate in Oriental medicine, and 13 years of study in Ayurvedic medicine, and later interests in anthroposophical medicine that all was around the same realm. But I also had the opportunity to study in places like hospitals and work in an HIV clinic for three years and work in a neurology clinic and work in a pain center in a hospital and do ER shifts. So I got to see all aspects of medicine and got to work in all aspects of medicine to recognize that not one is better than the other, that they can all come to the table and serve very powerfully where needed, when needed. And I learned, started to learn how to sort of anticipate that like what was best, when was best. So that journey I'm still on with all of you today, 28 plus years later. And um, I don't personally believe that there's an actual cure for cancer because cancer is part of us all of the time, always mm. has been, always will be. And so to try and think of it as the enemy, that somehow invaded us that we have to extricate, like get out, kill, have battle with. Not my cup of tea. That's not my thought process. I recognize it as an extension of myself, as a messenger, as a guide, as a teacher. And it has an enormous amount to teach me. And it has. And I still learn every day. And so what I learned is how to keep it very um, sort of stable in my body and very um, almost, you know, just like it's just part of me. It's, it's who I am. So my hope is the conversations that I've been teaching patients for so many years and what the research is actually ironically coming around to say the same is that this is a manageable disease process. It, is not, it does not have to be a death sentence and we need to approach it a bit differently than just poison slash burn um, to have a long quality of life. Now, those tools can be utilized in the proper way, but you don't want to forget the terrain that is wrapped around that tumor or you won't be as successful. Uh, it's very, uh, very huge <laughs> um, data about the cancer now. And um, uh, what, what do you think? You, you say, uh, you say that uh, the cancer is the part of uh, a person and uh, we live with the cancer. All right, am, am I right? So uh, each person lives with the cancer cells, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, what um, what uh, causes cancer? I mean, what uh, makes uh, uh, cancer grow? Um, these cells grow. Uh, do you think uh, uh, this uh, uh, this is uh, emotional causes or? Uh, mm, um, diet causes? Yeah, such a good question. And Olga, that's precisely why I put together my book with my co-author, Jess Higgins Kelly, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And what we try to help people understand is in all my years, going in nearly three decades now of this process for myself and having the ability to witness and support tens of thousands of others with experiences of reviewing the labs and the provocative testing and the tissue assays and the epigenetics hundreds of thousands of times to really start to see data and translate it to what that means. What I've personally come up with are 10 main sort of triggers or patterns that seem to affect all of us in respect to whether we are cancering 
or not. And I use that verb very thoughtfully because it's like I said, it's there. Cancer is a noun and it is part of us, but dependent on certain things, it can start to get, become a verb, become active, right? So yes. that's what we started to learn about. And what I started to put together were these 10 patterns. I call it the terrain 10 that kind of fill into the bucket of you, okay? You could think of that bucket as your own body. You could think of that bucket as your mitochondria, which are just those very fundamental energy cells that you wouldn't be here today if you didn't have them, okay? And so either way, those 10 drops are our epigenetics. So the deck of cards you were given in this lifetime and how you choose to play them, right? So these are your genetics that are dynamic, that you actually have power to change with your diet, your lifestyle, your thoughts, your exposures, who you hang out with, all of those pieces impact your own genetic expressions. So that also typically comes like, for instance, a woman is three generations in and of herself. So it is herself, it is her own ovaries, and it is the information within the eggs within her ovaries. And then when, if she has a child, if she's a pregnant woman, there's generations right there. So we're looking at three to five generations at any given time with a couple of women in, in a lineage that are expressing and are responding to information coming in. So epigenetics is huge. The next big piece here is our metabol like our metabolism. So specifically, the way we burn our fuel and the fuel choices. More specifically, carbohydrates. We really moved far away from being a dual um, hybrid engine where we could easily move into burning fat or sugar as needed for, for fuel sources. But after we started really processing sugar and flour into everything in the 1850s, we've all kind of gotten stuck as sugar burners. It's like we've got a, a, you know, like a brick on the gas pedal and our body really today only knows how to burn sugar and not fat very effectively or efficiently. And so interestingly enough, a study came out, I believe a year and a half ago in the United States that less than 12% of all Americans are metabolically flexible, meaning less than 12% of us know how to be a burner of fat or a burner of carbohydrate. That's how bad it's become. And we can now correlate pretty much all diseases that take our lives today, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, dementia, obesity, cancer, all of those are related to that metabolic dysfunction. So sugar, carbohydrates, it's a problem, big problem. And, and it's like the foundation. You cannot heal a body on broken fuel, right? You can't drive a car with bad fuel just like you can't drive a body. The third is toxicity. It's no longer a question of if you have toxicity, it's how much and how does it interplay with your own body, your own microbiome, your own uh, dietary lifestyle choices, your own epigenetic expression. And then we have things like um, microbiome, huge. We now know that that probably is more important in our emotional health and our immune health than ever thought of before. And as a naturopathic doctor, Ayurvedic practitioners, all of us, we've known this for thousands and then hundreds of years um, in, those, in those particular fields that this played a role, and yet we've kind of ignored them in standard of care for a very long time. Then we have our immune function, inflammation, which is considered one of the biggest drivers of all chronic conditions today, circulation, which includes things like angiogenesis, which is how tumors derive blood supply to them to make them more aggressive, to our hormones, we're all just sort of swimming in a hormonal stew today with all of the toxic chemicals on the planet, with glyphosate in our food, with non-organic animal 
protein products with plastics, with pesticides, herbicides that endocrine disrupt us and change our hormonal expression. And then things like stress and circadian rhythm. So when are we going to bed? When are we awake? When are we eating? When are we not eating? You know, how are we coping with our stress mechanisms? And then finally, as you alluded to a moment ago, the 10th drop in the bucket, if you will, is our mental, emotional health and well-being. So we know for a fact that um, children exposed to high stress and trauma and neglect in early childhood have a much higher risk of cancer and chronic illness in their adulthood. We know that there's something called the ACE score, your adverse childhood event score. It's a questionnaire that your listeners can pull off the internet and take the quiz themselves. And it's just 10 questions, basically asking you about 10 experiences you had before the age of 18. And for every yes you had to those experiences, your incidence of chronic illness goes up and up and up. And so when you ask about my triggers, I know for myself the drops in the bucket, literally every one of them was, was present. I had terrible epigenetics, the BRCA gene, um, uh, you know, lots and lots of trauma in my family of origin, lots and lots of illness in my family of origin, things like trends and patterns that came through, both nature and nurture. Um, in my sugar, we only knew sugar and processed food. I did not have a diet that would keep even a lab rat alive, much less a human being. <laughs> it was amazing. Thanks to youth and to the number of mitochondria we have when you're young, I'm able to tolerate that for a bit of time until you move into your 20s and 30s and you no longer can get away with those things. And then third, toxicants. I lived near seven super, now today, super fun sites. So toxic environments. Um, definitely knew that there were, uh, we know, now know later, there were a lot of chemicals in our water, our air, our, um, our um, soil that I was affected by. Microbiome, like I said, I started in this world with a very messed up digestive tract and had to keep trying different things. And I was already eating solid foods too soon because formulas didn't agree with me. So my poor microbiome never got a good start, meaning my immune system and my emotional system never got a good start. And then we moved into my immune system, broken, right? I also found I had celiac disease and rheumatoid arthritis and osteoporosis at a very young age, polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, Hashimoto's, all of these different conditions which are autoimmune, so my immune system wasn't working. Inflammation, I was constantly covered in massive cystic acne, right? Rashes, really just always in pain of some sort, and I was a hardcore athlete pushing as well. And then moving into hormone, I mean, into uh, circulation, I had really weird circulatory patterns, always hot, cold hands, terrible um, varicose veins, things like that. Hormones, hot mess on pretty much every level you can possibly imagine, on birth control pills since 11 to regulate my cycle, um, which definitely fed into my cancering process as well. And then stress, coming from the environment, I had 10 out of 10 on my ACE score of where I was coming from. I was like living in a life war zone. And so I was always in fight or flight, always in stress, always in fear. And then the mental emotional, I had a lot of addictions and abuse and trauma and sexual abuse in my, in my body, in my own family of origin. Poverty played a huge role. Um, not a lot of good emotional intelligence and teaching and mentorship. I had to figure out on my own. And so now looking back, of course I had cancer. Of of course it hit me young and of course it was aggressive because I had literally every single drop in the bucket. And so in our book, we start with a questionnaire that allows you to take an inventory of which drops might be affecting your bucket.
And so you can take that and read this book, whether you have cancer or not, to know what your blind spots are, know maybe what your priorities are, and start to clean up your bucket. Anywhere you start is going to be beneficial. So yes, it's definitely not a one, you know, we kind of say, oh, it's genetic, it's this one hit. Genetics make up less than 5% of all cancers. It's all of the 95%, which are those drops in the bucket we just described that cause a cancering process. So my hope is people start to realize what those drops are and do something about it. Uh, thank you for this because I asked uh, a lot of people about consent, what causes consent. Uh, uh, I have uh, uh, different answers, but you, you say that uh, uh, everybody can have this checklist and uh, uh, check themselves on, uh, on uh, cancer. And um, uh, how might uh, the keto diet help treat cancer? Such a good question. A lot of people have sort of coined me as just the keto girl, despite the fact that I believe in a lot of things as we just discovered. <laughs> um, but what we've learned about the work from Dr. Otto Warburg back in the 1920s and others who've come along the pathway is having the body in a low glycemic state with beta hydroxybutyrate ketone bodies in circulation, which is the burning of fatty acids, will do a few things. Well, first of all, it will directly impact what is known as the 10 hallmarks of cancer. So your listeners can go and Google 10 hallmarks of cancer to get the details of that because it's quite scientific and heady. But the essence is it's all those signaling pathways that tell things to grow, those other signaling pathways that tell things not to die, um, other pathways that increase drug resistance, other pathways that utilize certain fuel sources for the cancer, et cetera. So just to give you an example, and what we've learned is those beta-hydroxybutyrate ketone bodies seem to regulate each of those hallmarks of cancer to stabilize the process. In some situations, in, in some people and some cancer diagnostics, that can be enough to actually not just stop the cancer, but push it back. But for most of us, we recognize it just helps us slow down the process to bring in other tools that can help the body overcome this process. So it enhances all of our standard of care therapies. For instance, radiation for cancer is ineffective if people have high insulin, high mm -hmm. glucose levels, because cancer cells desensitize to radiation when they have high elevations of insulin and glucose that they're being exposed to. So a ketogenic diet can actually enhance your sensitivity of those cancer cells to be killed by the radiation. Also what happens when we have high sugar insulin in the face of radiation, not only do those cells not respond very well, they mutate and they become more aggressive and less responsive to standard of care. There's also other therapies like aromatase inhibitors or androgen deprivation therapies, which are often used for um, prostate cancer, breast cancers, ovarian cancers, endometrial cancers, those also won't work as well if the sugars are high. Same thing with a lot of different chemotherapies and targeted therapies like the tyrosine kinase inhibitor targeted therapies give you diabetes for crying out loud. And so you need to sort of push back against that with being in a ketogenic diet, 
right? There are some people out there with concerns that maybe those ketones could actually fuel the cancer process. And most of those concerns are showing up in cell line or animal studies. But I'm here to tell you, when we look at those studies, we're looking at them in a vacuum. We're looking at them usually with just a particular, like adding in loads and loads of um, acetoacetate acetoacetate uh, ketone bodies or beta hydroxy beta hydroxy um, beta hydroxy BHB uh, ketone bodies, but we're not changing the medium. We're not changing the other parts of the of the terrain when we add those into the studies. And so those studies don't really give us much reality of what we're seeing out there clinically. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, all patients will, with any cancer type, given that 95% are glycolytic in nature, meaning that they like to go after sugar in nature, will do well on a low-carbohydrate diet no matter what. Some cancer types are even more of a sugar dump, which means like brain, pancreas, breast, ovarian, non-small cell lung carcinoma, colorectal cancer, prostate, these are very much driven by insulin, insulin growth factor. Um, they move on these pathways like mTOR and, and uh, PI3KC and ACT and MAPK pathways, which mean nothing. They seem like Greek, but these are where we're spending our billions of dollars in research to turn, hit these targets. And yet a ketogenic diet does that beautifully. And so getting the ketones up, the glucose and insulin down makes also our cancer cells very vulnerable to whatever therapies. Maybe it's IV vitamin C or hyperbaric oxygen. Maybe it's surgery. Maybe it's radiation or chemotherapy or targeted therapies. So ultimately we find is it becomes a friend, not a foe most of the time. And only with testing and knowing what you're looking at clinically Will you know if it's not appropriate? But I test my clients so, so deeply on their epigenetics, their tissue types, and their blood tests, and their cancer type, that I know if and when it's working and not working. And I know when to switch gears if need be for any given reason at any given time, because none of us are meant to get on a single regimen and stay with it, especially when you're using it as a tool to kill or treat a disease. So when I think of ketogenic diet, I don't think of it as a diet. I think of it as a therapy, okay? Just like surgery or chemo or radiation or IV vitamin C or mistletoe therapy, it's a therapy. When I think dietary for helping a patient overcome cancer or treat cancer or prevent cancer or chronic illness, I want a diet that instigate, instigates metabolic flexibility. And that might be a lot of roads leading to Rome to create that. Maybe that's intermittent fasting. And by that, it could be maybe you just eat in a uh, eight-hour window every day or just even a couple times a week. Maybe you fast only 13 hours a day. So basically 7 p.m. from dinner to 8 a.m. breakfast. That's what a study from MD Anderson showed that women who'd had a previous breast cancer lower their risk of recurrence by 70% simply by not eating for 13 hours. Do you know how many people can go 13 hours without eating? Less than 12%, right? That's how sad it's gotten. We are so overfed and undernourished. We're constantly seeking a snack. Got to eat something before bed. Got to wake up and eat right away. Eat dinner late. Go to bed. Get up. Eat again. We're constantly feeding. We're not taking out the garbage, which is autophagy, which helps us clean things out. Then there's deeper fasting. You can go, I mean, like I did that very long one, two, two and a half months early on in my diagnosis. And there are plenty of medically guided fasts that can go as long as it takes, you know, to, for somebody to achieve whatever their health goals are. But there's a wide variety of fasting and people like Dr. Fung, Jason Fung wrote a great book on different ways to intermittent fast. 
see what resonates with you. Bring that in. You can also use a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, which is a ketogenic diet to fast. People can also achieve good metabolic flexibility with just eating purely carnivore or a low carbohydrate vegetarian or even taking exogenous ketones. So my point is there's no one way, just get there. Just get to that place where your body knows how to burn fat and sugar as needed without effort, as it was designed to be. Uh, okay, uh, and uh, you, you say uh, that people can uh, even have a vegetarian diet with uh, pets. Uh, so uh, that was my uh, next question about meat, about meatarians. Uh, do you think meat can uh, cause uh, cancer or, um, or no? Um, well, this is where we, we really break down the meat myth in our book. Because the meat that I ran from screaming at 16 years old to become a vegetarian is the meat that no one on this planet should be ingesting today those meats that are raised in factory farms and high stress and very just polluted environments where they're being shot up with every chemical to grow them quickly. So the hormones and they're being fed glyphosate drenched endocrine disrupting known cancer causing, you know, agents in their corn and their grain that they're being fed. And then they're being pumped up with antibiotics because of their horrific living condition. And then you imagine the stress chemistry going on in them, the cortisol raging in those poor mistreated animals. That meat is poison. Have, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I know that there are people out there that are pro carnivore and they're like, it's still better than nothing. No, in my world, the type of patients I see, it's not. I see that show up on their lab tests. I can see when someone's eating high quality, organic, grass-fed, grass-finished, happy cow meat on their labs versus someone who's eating a McDonald's burger, right? There's a whole different ball game there and how it shows up. The, the animals that are in those stress conditions that are being loaded up with antibiotics and hormones and glyphosate and they're eating the grains, they are running much higher in insulin growth factor, okay? Which is one of the biggest drivers. Like I said, 95% of cancers have a sensitivity to this. Actually 70% specifically to insulin growth factor, but 95% to glucose in general. And yet the animals that are raised in a whole different way, processed in a whole different way, whole different consciousness, actually have life-giving qualities. The essential fatty acids that they contain, the rich important nutrients, the B12s, the, the, the vitamin A, the vitamin D, the vitamin K, things you can't easily get from your um, non-animal protein. Yeah. And, and a lot of people are like, well, you can get them from vegan supplements. You do, but not to the level you need to make it therapeutic and they're not very bioavailable. And so that's the place where it's a definite dif differentiation. There's also some people who have certain epigenetic hiccups that for instance, the ACSL1 SNP or the APOE34 or APOE2, these patients may actually be more sensitive to red meat causing them problems. They're like the folks who eat a steak and the steak acts like a candy bar into their system. It puts them into metabolic imbalance, right? It's weird, but that's just part of the chemistry. Or there's people who eat too much of the good stuff. Even if they're eating the right quality of protein, they're eating too much and that stimulates a growth factor known as mTOR. 
And mTOR can be a very big driver in the cancering process. We want mTOR when we're a growing child. We don't want that mTOR when we're a growing tumor, okay? And so there's so many ways to qualify the food. And that's the key is quality really makes a difference in these discussions. So when we look at the common denominators of veganism, vegetarianism, you know, paleo diets, ketogenic diets, diets that are healthy and helpful for cancer, here's their common denominators. They're low glycemic, period. Okay, low carbs, less than 50 grams a day of carbohydrate. Okay, most people are eating 300 grams of carbohydrate at breakfast. So you got to do a macro counter like a MyFitnessPal or a chronometer and take a look yourself because everyone tells me I don't eat sugar. And then I look at their diet diary and I help them run it through a, a micro, macro counter. And then they're shocked to realize they're eating three days of sugar by the end of breakfast, right? So everyone needs to go low glycemic in at least, when we're in the cancering process. Do they have to stay there forever? Maybe no. But when we're dealing with cancer, it's wise, okay? Everyone needs to keep in their... They're, they're building components of their polyphenol-rich, enzyme-rich, multi-target hitting plant matter. Plant-based is key here. I want my patients, I shoot for 9 to 15 servings of vegetables a day and low carbohydrate above the ground growth. So we're talking all of the cruciferous vegetables, the, the, the leafy greens, we're talking about the celery and the parsley and all the herbs, and we're talking about radishes, and we're talking about all these things that grow leeks and all the sulforaphane-rich foods out there that are really powerful to upregulate our P53 tumor suppressor gene, and all the things that help turn on and off little epigenetic switches and anti-inflammatory processes throughout the whole body. And then on top of that, good, clean, quality fat. And depending on your genetics, your epigenetics, that might be more animal-rich fats, you know, like maybe it's more butter and eggs and cheese and meat, but it could also be more, it's like some of my patients need more Mediterranean-based, so more like fish and olive oil and avocado oil and seed, like nut seed oil instead, depending on that is what they need. And then really protein, is just to the needs of the patient. For a cancer patient, we tend to want to keep it between well under one gram per kilogram, preferably closer to 0.8 grams per, per kilogram of body composition a day, just to give the body the building blocks that it needs, but not push it into gluconeogenesis or any other processes. And then when I say literal tiny cherry on top, that might be, depending on your glycemic metabolic process, if you're really out of range in the beginning, you don't get fruit. Right? But once you become more metabolically flexible, we start to bring in some low glycemic organic berries, some uh, maybe a small organic green Granny Smith apple. You know, we start to move into that realm of you start to be able to expand a bit because your body can tolerate and adapt and be flexible around it. And so that's the commonality of all of this. And so my personal experience, because I've tested so many people's genetics and their labs, and I myself was on this journey, um, I have not found people being successful vegans in this realm. And I know it's the most popular diet that's out there as far as what people say. It's the most common diet that's described for a cancer patient that's out there. But I'm telling you as someone who's looking under their hood, I don't see that being reality. What I have seen is successful vegetarians doing this because they're still getting in some of that important animal protein of eggs or maybe a little bit of dairy if it's appropriate for their body. And beyond that, they tend to not have to go much more. 
and they're getting all their needs met. Because when you try to get your protein needs met on a vegan diet, you're by nature upping your carbohydrates. So to get it from your legumes and your grains to get that combination of the amino acids, you are by nature getting higher carbohydrate in order to do so. So it's that you can't have it both ways in that environment, right? And so what I do tell people is a vegan diet can be very helpful for short-term like cleansing. I think that's what was part of my journey in my own healing. And it's funny, I actually gravitate naturally to no animal protein at all. That's, I'm an A blood type. I just kind of, I love my veggies. My mom said at three years old, my favorite vegetable was a Brussels sprout, right? So I really get that. But I also had to listen to my body as she was screaming for nourishment. And I was vegetarian for over 20 years. I was vegan for seven of those years. And as I started to incorporate in a little bit of eggs in the beginning, it was like cells started to come alive. And then later I graduated to a little bit of dairy and I couldn't do dairy for 15 years because I was still eating grains. But when I quit grains entirely and legumes entirely, suddenly my gut healed and I was able to do really good quality clean dairy, ghee, butter, a little bit of heavy whipping cream on occasion, sometimes some really good raw organic cheese if I'm traveling or whatnot. And then over time I learned again, it's like that was still not enough. I'd been so severely anemic that I was tired of literally shooting myself up with iron shots in my butt that I thought I'm gonna eat a little meat. That did not happen for me until 10 years ago. And so it was still all this time and that really only comes up for me cyclically. I only feel like the, the, the coffers get drained around my period, right? And a lot of people are always shocked to hear that a woman stage four ovarian cancer this many years out still has a period, TMI most likely, but I was able to keep everything, right? I was able to get through this process even with the tumor still in my ovary, even with lesions on my liver, even with peritoneal implants and carcinomatosis around my pelvis. Even with all of those things still on board, my body has found a way to contain and live in synergy and harmony and peace with this. And I stay on top of it. I watch it carefully and I know what makes me work and not work very quickly. I always teach and educate my patients the same. And my dietary needs change. They change seasonally. They change with, I'm now starting to move into perimenopause. I need different things today. You know, a lot of times we need higher protein as children growing and as, as aging. The in-between can get away with less. So probably from 20 to 40 or 20 to 50, you can probably get away with more of a vegetarian or a vegan diet. But I'm here to tell you as I'm moving into my 50s, I'm starting to hanker for it a bit more. And my labs are telling me that. Not that I want that, but my body is asking for what it needs and I'm a really good observer and listener. So it's just interesting. I want your listeners to know there is no one way. There's sort of like some general parameters, but you've got to test, assess, address yourself, know what you need when you need it, and be willing to adapt to those needs. Because frankly, the biggest poison that I see out there is dogma. Dogma kills. Okay. For yeah. sure. So uh, for, for those people uh, with good health and no personal history of cancer, what things uh, can they do to improve their odds of, avoid, of avoiding their disease? I love it. You know, one of the most powerful, simple, free ways that doesn't even ask them, it doesn't even invite them to change their diet. It just changes the timing of their eating. So my recommendation is every person should be fasting 13 hours a day. Certainly. Certainly. And that's through the night, right? So like finish dinner, don't eat again until 13 hours later. 
you know, you can have water, as much water, or maybe herbal tea or plain black coffee if you really must, but no, nothing else, okay? What's interesting is the first few times you try that, you might be surprised that it's more difficult than you thought. So I tell people, if you try 13 hours and you only make it to 10, great, keep working at it, right? Your body will learn, it will adapt. So your first forage is, let's try 13 hours. Once you've mastered that, then twice a week, shoot for 16 to 18 hours, meaning eat in just a, you know, a, a, a six to eight hour window only. So maybe you eat between say 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. and see what that feels like twice a week. That is going to kind of help the body take out the garbage a little more effectively. And then if you really want to get crazy, people like Dr. Walter Longo, who's a world-renowned longevity researcher, and people like Dr. Thomas Seafried, who's a, a really famous researcher in the realm of cancer, oncology, um, et cetera, they recommend that once or twice a year, you do an extended fast, like a three to five day fast, once or twice a year. In my patient population, I really encourage them to do it seasonally. You have to remember, fasting has been part of human existence. It's been part of religious ceremony. It's been part of spiritual paths. I really like it to be a place where people regroup and reform, especially coming out of like the holidays. You know, it's really nice. In fact, I'm just finishing up a five-day fast. Um, and normally I do it a bit earlier in January, but we had so many visitors that extended on. I just put it around myself. So I kind of look at my calendar and I realize, I'm going to be home for a few days. This is the window to do it. I don't have any big events I have to go to, etc. It starts to become this way that you are helping your body learn and remember how to go back to that burning, you know, hybrid engine. And then I would encourage people to run some basic labs. Their hemoglobin A1C, your goal is to have it below five. Your insulin, your goal is to have it less than five. And your um, insulin growth factor, if you're not dealing with cancer, I'm not as concerned, but make sure it's not too high. Like we don't really want it above 150 outside of the cancer realm. We want it a little bit lower when we're dealing with active cancer. But those are ways for you to take a personal inventory. Your glucose levels fluctuate so much, they really don't mean much. Get the other tests. Then if you are elevated in those areas, knowing what we said at the beginning of the interview, your likelihood and risks of all conditions that take our lives today are much higher in that glycosylated end product, that browning effect that sugar does in the body, that aging effect that it does in the body, if you are running high, then get something like a chronometer, maybe get something like a keto mojo blood and ketone glucose uh, monitor, and start to just see where you are out there and then adjust your diet accordingly. So if you are a vegan, maybe you need to become a vegetarian and maybe bring your carbs down. If you're a vegetarian and you're eating really well, but it's still not enough, maybe you need to explore what that looks like. If you're a hardcore carnivore and your sugars are high, maybe you need to bring back the vegetable matter and get that fiber in there and pull back all of that mTOR driving meat. So my point is every place has room for improvement, but you have to do the self-awareness and the inventory. Don't just say, I feel good on it or it looks good because everybody with cancer who comes to me says, I was healthy until I got cancer. BS, I don't even know if I can say the real word, but that's not possible. You are not healthy if you have a diagnosis of cancer. You have multiple drops in your bucket that might be blind to you and they need to be assessed. So my mantra always, test, assess, address, don't guess, and adjust accordingly. Oh, thank you. And uh, the last question I ask uh, all 
uh, our hosts, um, if you had a, a choice to send a message to humankind, what would you say? Wow. Whew, depends on the day, but I think today, <laughs> given the, uh, the world around us, given some sort of shocking losses in my own life this past year of dear loved mentors, incredibly, incredibly close friends, even famous people that I don't even know, but their death, their loss um, was a shock to all of us. With all that, how short and sweet this world is, none of us know what our actual expiration date is. None of us can know. And so my encouragement is to live every single day in each moment as if it's your last and to do so with joy and gratitude and kindness. And that can go a long way in a world that's seemingly a bit loaded with despair and unkindness and discourse. And so that would be where I would just say, you know, the, the cells listen to that as well. We know our bodies, those with a higher level of gratitude and purpose also have better outcomes in any chronic diagnosis. And we know that though those are, who are brewing in fear or resentment or rage or anger have a higher instance of progression and metastasis and a poorer life prognosis. And so our thoughts really do create our reality. And so just remember that and remember everyone is carrying their own burden and their own struggle and we can help each other by extending the joy, the gratitude, and the kindness. Thank you so much for such an inspiring uh, interview.